Hi, listeners. If extraterrestrial has taught us anything, it's that you can't have a sighting, encounter, or mystifying incident without having plenty of conspiracy theories surrounding it. And for that reason, I'm so happy I get to share these captivating episodes from the ParCast series, Conspiracy Theories. If you haven't heard it already, Conspiracy Theories tells the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events. Well, the episodes you're about to hear do not disappoint. They're about the ancient astronauts, and they explore the remarkable feats of construction achieved in the ancient world. Was it just good old-fashioned engineering, or was it something out of this world? You can discover more cover-ups and questionable truths by following Conspiracy Theories on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Herodotus sighed as his camel trotted across the interminable desert landscape. When he decided to become the first person to chronicle the stories of every civilization on the planet... He hadn't envisioned it would be this boring. Visiting Egypt had seemed like such a good idea. It was the oldest empire in the known world, after all. Older than Athens. Older than Sparta. But so far, all he'd gotten for his troubles was sand in his sandals and a horrible sunburn. The only thing that had kept him from turning around was his guide's promise that they were going to see the most incredible structure on Earth. Herodotus was skeptical. He had seen the hanging gardens of Babylon. He had seen the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. He doubted this pyramid would even compare to the Athenians' Parthenon. But as they crested yet another sand dune, Herodotus gasped. There it was, the so-called Great Pyramid of Giza. He had been wrong. Nothing could compare to such a wondrous sight. His guide told him it had taken the work of hundreds of thousands of laborers to build this incredible structure, but Herodotus wasn't sure any number of men could have accomplished such a feat. As he craned his neck up at the towering structure, he couldn't help but think the gods must have had a hand in its construction. It seemed to touch the sky itself. Surely no human civilization could have built this alone. They must have had help. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. Neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on ancient astronauts, also commonly referred to as ancient aliens. For hundreds of years, many monuments from the ancient world have fascinated scholars. How cultures working with basic tools and rudimentary technology could have tackled projects of such enormous scope has defied explanation. But some paranormal researchers believe they have discovered the solution. These ancient cultures didn't build their monuments on their own. They had help from aliens. This week, we'll be looking into three different ancient monuments, the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Nazca Lines, and the Easter Island statues. We'll go into what we know of their early histories, how they caught the attention of modern scholars, and why it's been so difficult to explain how they were built. Well, next week, we'll examine why each of these monuments has attracted the attention of ancient astronaut conspiracy theorists. We'll talk about the theories on how aliens could have helped to build the Great Pyramids, Nazca Lines, and Easter Island statues, and see if they can be reconciled with the most current official explanations behind these enigmatic structures. There's an Arab proverb that says, man fears time, yet time fears the pyramids. Indeed, these iconic monuments, which stand just outside the city of Cairo, seem to exist outside of time itself. Built during the reign of the pharaoh Khufu, between 2589 and 2566 BCE, the largest pyramid in the Giza complex rises to an impressive height of 479 feet. Each side of its square base measures 754 feet. It is comprised of some 2 million granite and limestone blocks, each one weighing about 2.5 tons. To put that in perspective, the Great Pyramid was the tallest structure in the entire world for over 3,800 years until the construction of Lincoln Cathedral in 1311. But before we get into how the pyramid was built, we need to understand why it was built and ask ourselves if ancient astronauts would have any motivation to help construct it. Most likely, the pyramid was built as an elaborate tomb for Pharaoh Khufu. But pyramids weren't always the go-to construction for Egyptian royal tombs. When the Egyptian culture was first starting to coalesce in around 5500 BCE, the dead were buried in shallow oval pits with provisions for the afterlife. These items, known as grave goods, included valuable pieces such as jewelry and pottery, as well as food that would help sustain them. But the problem with leaving grave goods in such an unsecured manner was that the living could easily steal them. To combat this issue, in around 3200 BCE, wealthy Egyptians started covering their tombs with mud brick structures known today as mastabas. As Egyptian society became more prosperous, the mastabas covering the pharaoh's tombs became larger and larger. By the time Pharaoh Joza came to power around 2670 BCE, well, not just any mastaba would do. 
To help his king create the grandest tomb yet, Joza's chief advisor, Imhotep, devised a plan. He would stack multiple mastabas on top of each other. In order to prevent the structure from collapsing in on itself, Imhotep decided to build the mastabas out of stone rather than mud bricks. The structure was a series of six stacked mastabas, each one smaller than the last. The end result was a tiered or step pyramid, the oldest in the world. It still stands today at the ancient site of Saqqara, south of Cairo. Once Joja's step pyramid was built, his successors naturally wanted to improve upon its design. To that end, when the pharaoh Sneferu took the throne in around 2613 BCE, he wanted to build a larger, smooth-sided pyramid. After two unsuccessful attempts, his architects were able to erect what is known as the Red Pyramid, the first true pyramid in Egyptian history. With a square base whose sides measured 722 feet each, the Red Pyramid's 43-degree angled sides allowed it to reach a height of 343 feet. But it was just a preview for what was to come. When Sneferu's son, Khufu, became pharaoh around 2589 BCE, he immediately set to work building an even bigger pyramid than his father had. By the time Khufu died 23 years later, the Great Pyramid of Giza had been built. But how such a feat was accomplished was unclear. The sheer size of the Great Pyramid and the short period of time in which it was built didn't seem to line up with the capabilities of the Egyptian labor force. Khufu's successors were unable to eclipse the scope of the Great Pyramid. Khufu's son, Khafra, also had a pyramid built at Giza, but it was smaller than his father's. Within a hundred years, pharaohs were once again being buried under simple mastabas. Not long after that, they were back to being buried underground. And while these tombs still boasted incredible riches, none of them approached the majesty of Khufu's pyramid. It seems odd that once the Egyptians learned to build massive pyramids, they almost immediately reverted to building far simpler tombs. Considering that the pharaohs believed themselves to be living gods, it feels out of character that they wouldn't try to eclipse the Great Pyramid's grandeur. The downsizing could have been a simple issue of resources. Khufu's reign was one of ancient Egypt's most economically prosperous periods. It could have just been that subsequent pharaohs weren't able to dedicate the same manpower to creating tombs on the scale of the Great Pyramid. It's also important to note that the pyramids weren't particularly effective at keeping out grave robbers. The entire premise behind the pyramid structure was to prevent looting. But thieves were easily able to tunnel into the giant structures and steal the riches that lay inside. After Khufu, the pharaohs also began to lose some of their influence with high priests who acted as local magistrates. With less centralized power, Khufu's various successors may not have commanded the respect needed to focus on such ambitious building projects. As the centuries passed, the knowledge of how Khufu had managed to build such a massive monument was lost. With nobody attempting to surpass the Great Pyramid, there just wasn't a need to keep any official records on how it was constructed. 
but stories about the process were passed down through oral tradition. Around 500 BCE, the Greek historian Herodotus became the first person to put the pyramid-building process onto paper, or in his case, papyrus. Writing in the second book of his iconic work, simply titled The Histories, Herodotus detailed how Khufu was able to build the Great Pyramid of Giza. Referring to Khufu by the Greek name Cheops, Herodotus described how the great pharaoh conscripted 100,000 men at a time to continually work in three-month shifts. The work was, unsurprisingly, backbreaking. According to Herodotus, quote, some were appointed to draw stones from the stone quarries in the Arabian mountains to the Nile, and others he ordered to receive the stones after they had been carried over the river in boats and to draw them to those which are called the Libyan mountains. Once the stones reached the Giza Plateau just outside of Cairo, quote, the pyramid was made like stairs, which some call steps and others tears. When this was completed, the workmen used short wooden logs as levers to raise the rest of the stones. This manner of building allowed the Egyptians to fill out the rest of the pyramid from the top down, adding onto the lower sections as they descended. However, it must be noted that Herodotus got this information from his local guides. Although it shows that there was historical interest in the Great Pyramid as far back as 2,500 years ago, what Herodotus wrote essentially amounted to hearsay. Additionally, while Herodotus has been called the father of history, he was notoriously fast and loose with the facts. Even in his own time, he was known to have exaggerated aspects of the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE, and modern scholars have pointed to an account of fox-sized ants digging up gold dust in Persia as evidence that Herodotus wasn't the most reliable source for accurate information. A few hundred years later, the proverbial waters were further muddied when the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus presented an alternate account of how the pyramids were built. Sometime between 60 and 30 BCE, Siculus wrote, quote, The edifices were raised by means of earthen ramps, since machines for lifting had not yet been invented. But with no written records from Khufu's time, there was no way to verify if either of these accounts were accurate. And once the Romans conquered Egypt in around 30 BCE, the Great Pyramid lost much of its cultural significance. Rather than serving as the symbol of an empire's enduring legacy, it was reduced to little more than a specter of the past. By the time of the Arab invasions of Egypt during the 7th century CE, the area around the Great Pyramids of Giza was in ruins. The pyramids themselves still stood sentinel over the landscape, but there was little else around them to draw visitors. However, a few hundred years later, Western culture became familiar with the Great Pyramids when European soldiers traveled to the Middle East to fight in the Crusades. As word began to spread of these incredible structures, European travelers started to travel to Egypt. Many of them incorrectly believed the pyramids were the biblical granaries of Joseph. 
the theory originated from a story in the Old Testament in which Joseph helped the Egyptians survive a seven-year famine by storing grain. A 14th century travel memoir called The Book of John Mandeville described the pyramids of Giza as, quote, Joseph's granaries, which he had made to store the wheat for hard times. Egypt fell under Turkish rule in 1517. The Mamluk Sultanate, which had fought against the armies of Europe during the Crusades, was replaced with a friendlier regime. It suddenly became possible for Europeans to visit the pyramids and study them for themselves. In the late 1630s, English astronomer John Greaves visited Egypt and conducted a survey of the Great Pyramids of Giza. He collected Arabic, Persian, and Greek manuscripts, which allowed him to conclude that the pyramids had been built by Khufu and his successors, not by biblical figures. Greaves also visited the pyramids' interiors. He saw Khufu's empty sarcophagus, confirming that the pyramid had been used as a tomb, not as a granary. In his study of ancient texts, Greaves also uncovered Herodotus and Siculus's accounts of how the pyramids had been built. Verifying Herodotus's claims that the builders had utilized wooden levers was nearly impossible, since there was almost no chance any of the levers would have been preserved. But finding remains of ancient ramps was another matter altogether. As the field of archaeology became more established in the 1800s, remains of ramps were discovered at several pyramid sites across Egypt. However, none of them were at Giza. With no physical evidence to investigate in the immediate area, experts were once again reduced to speculating about how the Great Pyramid had been built. To achieve the height needed, a single long ramp would have had to extend past the plateau on which the pyramid was built, which is a highly improbable setup. A ramp that spiraled around the pyramid would also have been too problematic, as it would have made creating a symmetrical pyramid nearly impossible. But in 1968, a Swiss author named Eric von Daniken proposed a radical new idea. Considering the sheer scope of the effort and resources required to undertake such a project, von Daniken was certain the ancient Egyptians wouldn't have been capable of building the Great Pyramid on their own. He believed that they had help, and that help came from outer space. What's more, von Daniken proposed that the Egyptians weren't the only ones to receive guidance from an extraterrestrial civilization. Coming up, we travel to the arid Peruvian desert and look into the history of the mysterious Nazca Lines. And now, back to the story. The Great Pyramid of Giza has mystified scholars for thousands of years, with nobody able to provide a concrete answer as to how such a massive structure was built Swiss author Eric von Daniken posited in 1968 that the Egyptians built the Great Pyramid with the help of an extraterrestrial civilization. But according to von Daniken's theories, the Egyptians weren't the only culture these aliens helped. He also believed that 2,500 years after they helped the Egyptians build the Great Pyramid, they provided guidance to the Nazca people, located on the southern coast of modern-day Peru. 
The Nazca civilization first emerged between 200 and 100 BCE as a collection of chiefdoms united by a shared culture, rather than a single political authority. Although the population of 25,000 was spread across an area of about 10,750 square kilometers, the Nazcas had a large urban center at a village called Ventilla. Since Ventilla was located on an arid plain, the Nazca devised a system of underground aqueducts, galleries, and cisterns to ensure they always had a consistent water supply. This easy access allowed them to culturally prosper, and they developed elaborate ceramics and textiles. The Nazca's art was mostly pottery, and the etchings usually depicted their religious beliefs. Along with showing religious ceremonies involving hallucinogenic trances, the Nazca liked to portray their various deities. While many of the Nazca's gods were represented as animals, such as birds and fish, some were human in nature. But one, known as the oculate being, looked anything but human. Typically shown flying through the air with large, staring eyes and a snake-like tongue, the oculate being seemed more like a creature from another planet than any sort of god. In addition to their unique artwork, the Nazca were also ambitious traders. Many of their clothes were woven from llama and alpaca wool, which would only be available from highland cultures located in the Peruvian mountains, 200 miles to the east. Additionally, some Nazca mummies have been discovered with headdresses bearing feathers from faraway rainforest birds. It's incredible that they'd be able to trade over such large distances. Perhaps there was more to what they were doing than met the eye. Maybe a powerful force, such as the oculate being, helped them cross these vast distances? While we don't know the exact methods, there is evidence of many ancient South American cultures engaging in widespread trade as far back as the Paleo-Indian period, over 12,000 years ago. We know that the Inca people had an extensive road network, and the powerful inland rivers would have made trading easier as well. With consistent access to water and willing trade partners, the Nazca people were able to flourish for over 600 years. But sometime around 500 CE, their civilization started to decline, possibly due to severe flooding. By 750 CE, the Wari people had conquered the Nazca. Although the Wari adopted many of the Nazca's artistic traditions, the rest of their culture fell by the wayside. With no written records to preserve their history, they soon faded from memory altogether. But 750 years later, an unexpected arrival brought renewed interest in lost cultures such as the Nazca. Spanish conquistadors landed in South America in the early 1500s. In their bloodthirsty quest for riches, they combed over every inch of the continent that they could, and that included the arid deserts of southern Peru. One of these conquistadors was Pedro Cieza de Leon, a writer who traveled throughout Peru chronicling what he saw. With little in the way of earthly riches, the Nazca's former territory didn't hold much interest for him. What de Leon really wanted was to find some gold, which would raise his stature in the Spanish royal court. 
but so far, all he had found on this arid coastline was some painted pottery. Sure, it was pretty, but if it didn't glitter, it was useless. As De Leon traversed stony desert plateaus, he noticed long white lines dug a few inches into the ground. He didn't think much of them, assuming they were trail markers to help travelers orient themselves in this vast landscape. He had no idea he was looking at one of the most significant archaeological sites on the planet. Eighty years later, a Spanish magistrate named Luis de Monzon happened to be traveling over the same plateau. Like Pedro Cieza de Leon, he didn't find the area particularly remarkable, but he did take notice of the strange lines carved into the ground. De Monzon asked the area's indigenous people who created the lines. They told him it was a people called the Viracocha, who had descended from a powerful sky god of the same name. But they declined to say what the line's exact purpose was. For the next few centuries, nobody seemed to pay this area in the Peruvian desert any mind. But in the late 1800s, local residents started collecting the well-preserved pottery that lay in the ruins of ancient settlements. These pieces soon attracted the interest of the European art community, Over the next few years, scholars flocked to the area to learn more about the civilization that had made these incredible painted ceramics. With no written records to indicate what the people called themselves, researchers named them the Nazca, after the valley in which most of the artifacts had been discovered. In 1927, Peruvian archaeologist Torabio Mejia Cespe was hiking in the mountains around the former Nazca territory, taking a break from his studies to enjoy the area's dramatic beauty. As he stopped to take in the view, Cespe noticed strange lines stretching across the plateau below the hills. Unbeknownst to him, he had stumbled upon the same lines that had caught the attention of the Spanish conquistadors several centuries earlier. Similarly to what they had believed, he thought they outlined ancient roads or possible aqueducts. While he found the lines interesting, Cespe had other excavations to attend to. But when he mentioned them at a conference in 1939, American historian Paul Kosok decided he wanted to take a closer look. Kosok's specialty was in ancient irrigation systems, and he was interested in seeing how the Nazca had managed to maintain a steady water source in such an arid environment. Wanting to get a more complete view of the lines, he chartered a plane to fly over the plateau in 1940. As Kosok looked down at the lines, he rubbed his eyes in disbelief. He immediately knew he wasn't looking at an ancient road or irrigation system. He was looking at pictures, massive, larger-than-life pictures. In addition to various geometric designs, Many of the lines depicted animals, such as a hummingbird, a spider, and a killer whale. Additionally, a giant human-like figure had been drawn into a hillside overlooking the plateau. The figures were massive. Although they varied in size, the largest surpassed the length of a football field. And as Kosok drank it all in, he knew he had to learn more about these strange pictures. It was fairly easy for Kosok to conclude who had made the lines. 
The pictures, also known as geoglyphs, matched the same style of the paintings that were on the various pottery pieces attributed to the Nazca. Therefore, they became known as the Nazca Lines. The geoglyphs were made in low relief, meaning they were dug into the ground rather than built above it. To expose the white sand that marked the lines, the rocks and pebbles covering the plateau simply had to be brushed away. Even if they were working with simple tools, it would have been easy for the Nazca to make the lines. As for how the lines had been preserved for so many years, the plateau on which they were drawn was extremely dry, and there was almost no wind. With nothing to disturb them, the pictures were able to remain etched into the landscape. Kosok's initial hunch was that the pictures depicted constellations in the sky. Just as the Greeks attributed certain imagery to clusters of stars, Kosok wondered if the Nazca had created their own associations. As he described it, he believed the Nazca lines were, quote, the largest astronomy book in the world. However, the question that lingered in Kosok's mind was how the Nazca have been able to create such intricate pictures without being able to view them from above. While researchers were realizing that ancient South American cultures were more advanced than Westerners initially believed, they certainly weren't capable of flight. An American explorer named Jim Woodman wasn't so sure. In the 1970s, he developed a theory that the Nazca could have flown above the plateau using hot air balloons filled with smoke. Over 1,000 years before the first manned hot air balloon flight was recorded in 1783. Citing the Nazca's skill in creating beautifully woven textiles, Woodman believed they would have been capable of creating a material which could keep in enough hot air to float. The smoke that filled the balloon would also help seal any small holes that might exist. Woodman put his theory to the test, building a rudimentary hot air balloon using items that would have been available to the Nazca at the time. After several unsuccessful attempts, he managed to take off. However, this flight only lasted about two minutes before Woodman came crashing back down to Earth. He had proven that achieving flight was theoretically possible, but it would have been extremely difficult for the Nazca to stay afloat long enough to actually plan the design for their pictures. Furthermore, although Woodman claimed his theory was based on Nazca pottery depicting balloons and a legend that they would send their dead off to the sun using said balloons, he didn't offer any proof to back up those beliefs. However, there was at least one person who agreed that the Nazca lines must have been designed with the aid of observers placed high in the air, and that was Eric von Daniken, the author who proposed that the Great Pyramid of Giza had been built with the help of aliens. In his 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods, von Daniken argued that like the Great Pyramid, the Nazca lines had been created with extraterrestrial assistance. Von Daniken was certain that the lines were some kind of alien airport. Located close to the Peruvian coast, this flat, arid plateau would have been an ideal refueling site for any aircraft that had crossed the ocean. 
As for why the aliens would be traveling across the Pacific Ocean, von Daniken pointed to another archaeological site thousands of miles to the west of Peru. He believed the massive structures there were also evidence of extraterrestrial knowledge. This place was Easter Island. Coming up, we dive into the story behind the mysterious Easter Island statues. And now, back to the story. Once researchers started to carefully examine the Nazca lines in the 1940s, they wondered how the ancient Nazca people were able to create such intricate patterns without directing their construction from above. In the late 1960s, author Eric von Daniken proposed that in addition to massive structures like the Great Pyramid of Giza, extraterrestrial visitors had provided the guidance necessary to create the Nazca lines. Von Daniken also believed that the plateau where the lines were located may have served as a sort of alien airport. Perhaps they were coming from another site where aliens had helped create an impossible-seeming artistic feat. Perhaps they were coming from Easter Island. Located 2,200 miles from the western coast of South America, Rapa Nui, also called Easter Island, is a relatively tiny landmass measuring 14 miles by 7 miles. According to legend, the island was settled by a Polynesian chief named Hotu Matua, meaning the Great Parent. Whether or not this chief ever existed, the first people to come to the island were most likely Polynesian settlers who likely arrived in around 800 CE in seafaring canoes. The earliest known name for the island was Tepito Teanua, or the navel of the world. Given how far the island is from a major landmass, it's 2,200 miles from the coast of South America and about 2,400 from the Polynesian islands, this name was fairly apt. With nothing but ocean on every side, it's not hard to imagine why it could have been seen as the center of the world. Deciding to stay on the island rather than continue onward, the people known as the Rapa Nui started building imposing monumental statues called Moai. Carved out of stone from the slopes of a volcano on the southeast side of the island, the Moai were a key part of the Rapa Nui's religion. The Moai all shared a similar design. Standing up to 30 feet tall, they had straight-back torsos with hands resting on slightly rounded bellies. But while they didn't have the sculpted physique of an ancient Greek statue, they still conveyed a sense of power and authority. That's because of their proud, serious faces. With only slight variations in design, their long noses, extended ears, and furrowed brows gave the impression that the Moai were not to be trifled with. And for the Rapa Nui, they weren't. A major part of the Rapa Nui's belief system was ancestor worship. They believed that if their ancestors were properly revered, these forebearers would bestow them with mana, a mythical force that conveyed power, prestige, and prosperity. And the best way to worship their ancestors was by building moai. Because mana was transmitted through the statues, bigger and better moai led to increased mana. Over the next thousand-plus years, the Rapa Nui divided into several tribes. 
While the designs of their respective moai stayed the same, each tribe competed to build the biggest, most sophisticated-looking statues. In 1722, the Rapa Nui's isolation was broken when the Dutch navigator Jakob Rohaven arrived on its shores. He landed on Easter Sunday, which is how the island got its westernized name. Although he didn't stay long, Rohaven was mesmerized by the nearly 250 moai that stood sentinel on the island's shores. The next European visitors came to the island in 1770 when the Spanish Viceroy of Peru sent a small expedition to Rapa Nui. Like Jakob Rohaven, they marveled at the near-ubiquitous moai. In addition to the 250 that made a ring around the island, another 600 or so were scattered across the island's 63 square miles. Over their four-day survey of the island, They estimated its population was around 3,000 people. But something confused the European visitors. For one, the island was practically barren, with no trees over 10 feet tall. If the Rapa Nui were left in total isolation for almost 1,000 years, how could they have survived in such a difficult landscape? Furthermore, the lack of trees meant it would have been next to impossible to transport the giant Moai statues from the volcano quarry to their various resting spots around the island. Considering the lack of manpower in the small community, a brute force solution wouldn't have been possible. Unfortunately, the Rapa Nui themselves weren't able to provide many answers. Although they showed the Spanish visitors how they survived by farming crops such as sweet potatoes, the generations currently alive had no idea how the moai had been placed. Apparently, it had been over 100 years since any moai were removed from the volcanic quarry, and nobody had bothered to maintain an oral history of how they had been placed. Or perhaps they were forbidden to. At some point in these intervening years, a new religion had overtaken the Moai ancestor worship, the cult of the Birdman. Sometime in the late 1500s, natural resources on the island started to dwindle. Seabirds and their eggs became one of the only consistent sources of nourishment, and at some point, some of the islanders began to worship a god that was half bird, half man. But the Spaniards hadn't come to Rapa Nui to learn about the indigenous people's culture. They had come to evaluate the island as a potential resource. And although they left it alone for the next century or so because of the island's lack of useful natural resources, they eventually returned to collect a different kind of resource. In December 1862, a fleet of eight ships arrived from Peru to force the Rapa Nui into slavery. During this raid, they captured about 1,000 islanders. Amongst the captives were the island's king, his son, and all their ritual priests. Upon arriving in Peru, the enslaved Rapa Nui were treated so badly that over 90% of them died within one or two years. Outraged at what was happening, the Catholic bishop of Tahiti led a public outcry against the Peruvian government. The surviving slaves were returned to the island, but a smallpox epidemic broke out en route. Only 15 Rapa Nui made it back to their homeland alive. 
The smallpox then spread across the island, decimating the remaining population. By the 1870s, only a few hundred Rapa Nui were left. Around the same time, the Rapa Nui's culture was further affected when missionaries arrived to convert them to Catholicism. On January 2, 1864, a priest named Eugène Aero arrived on the island to begin a nine-month conversion effort. As he visited the remaining indigenous people's villages, Aero was shocked to discover hundreds of wooden tablets bearing what appeared to be some sort of hieroglyphic writing. According to the Rapa Nui, the tablets were historical chronicles, lists of people who had been killed in combat, and compendiums of war refugees. If deciphered, they might have been able to provide insight into how the Rapa Nui had built the Moai. Unfortunately, none of the surviving Rapa Nui could read them. Apparently, the ability to read the script, which was called Rongo Rongo, had been restricted to the ruling class and high priests, who had all died after being enslaved. Incredibly, Rongo Rongo was the first writing system discovered in an indigenous Polynesian culture. It was one of the few written languages that developed wholly independently of any other culture in the known world. This amazing fact also meant that there was no comparable writing system to help translate it. Tragically, this potentially valuable source of information on the Rapa Nui culture was all but useless. By 1888, Rapa Nui's indigenous population became even more marginalized when the Chilean government annexed the island and leased its land to sheep farmers. But the enigmatic Moai were left standing. As the years passed and travel to Rapa Nui became more accessible, researchers and tourists alike eagerly came to examine the Moai especially with the indigenous population reduced to only a few hundred people, it seemed inconceivable that even with thousands of years to do it, the Rapa Nui could have carved and transported the Moai. One of the tourists who visited the island was none other than the ancient astronaut theorist Eric von Daniken. Believing that the island's indigenous population had never risen above 2,000 people, there was no doubt in his mind that the Rapa Nui hadn't built the Moai on their own. As with the Great Pyramid of Giza and the Nazca Lines, von Daniken was convinced that the Moai had been constructed with the aid of extraterrestrials. He acknowledged that his theories would seem far-fetched. Some might say they sounded out of this world. But von Daniken was undeterred. He was sure that with more research, his theories would be vindicated. At the end of one chapter in Chariots of the Gods, he wrote, quote, If I admit to being a skeptic, I mean the word in the sense in which Thomas Mann used it in a lecture in the 20s. The positive thing about the skeptic is that he considers everything possible. After von Daniken's book was published in 1968, it drew widespread attention from fellow skeptics who questioned the accuracy of the historical record, but it also drew the attention of established scholars. And they were determined to do everything in their power to discredit his theories. (laughs) 
Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. In part two, we'll look into whether the Great Pyramid of Giza could have been a waypoint for extraterrestrial mapping, if the Nazca Line served as an alien airport, and if the Moai represented a powerful visitor from the cosmos. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Alex Benedon and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.